Our special guest on today's program is Larry Kesselman, Executive Group Chairman of LK Group. Larry, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. We'll get into your career and the depth and breadth of your career, which is remarkable in and of itself, but I thought we'd start at the start, if we could. Tell us a little bit about your family and, and your family's history. Well, the start, I was born in uh, Odessa, and uh, a country that a lot of people have heard of now, which is Ukraine. When we left, it was still the USSR, so one country, which has uh, been split up into Russia, Ukraine, and lots of other smaller countries, but it was all one when we left in, uh, in 1978, arrived here in 79 as immigrants. Mother is a doctor, father is an engineer, um, uh, went to school, didn't speak a lot of English to start off with, so part of it was like a lot of immigrant stories started the start and, uh, and the rest is history. So the, the background is quite um, a challenging one from assimilating into, uh, into a new country, even though we looked similar to a lot of people here, but uh, coming from Russia in 1979, I think everyone pretty much presumed you were a KGB agent <laughs> if you landed uh, in Australia at that time uh, in its history. It was something very, very different. As you mentioned, your father was an electrical engineer and your mother was a doctor. What, what influence did they have on you growing up? Super loving family. We also had my grandmother, so my mother's mother, living with us. So very loving environment. Uh, working really, really hard. My father had to apply for 52 jobs before he, he ended up getting his first um, first job and it was actually the only job at General Motors Holden. Uh, my mum was lucky enough to get a job uh, quicker at Red Cross. Uh, neither one of them ever ended up being at the levels of uh, jobs that they had in their original country of origin. So they had to settle for jobs well below, I think, where the status was uh, in, uh, in Russia or in Ukraine at the time, but they were always very, very happy. So happy household and, and my influence is uh, that we always had laughter and a lot of people in the house. It was always uh, community and a uh, huge amount of pride about the country. It did not go well for anyone that would ever complain about Australia or how either hard it is or uh, maybe comparing it to other places. Very passionate uh, about the place that they live and very thankful to be in an amazing country like Australia. So grew up wanting to achieve and wanting to succeed and uh, and their hard work and dedication and uh, how hard it was for them. Forget me as a 12 year old coming here, them coming in their early 40s and starting a new life, uh, I could see how hard that was. So for me, not being a burden on them and finding my way and succeeding, I think was very important. And just to rewind slightly, so born in Ukraine, 1966, by age 11, you then, with, a, with your family, moved to Italy for a period of six months, living just outside of Rome. During that period, I read that that was your first taste or exposure to business, making bracelets uh, out of fragments that you'd found. Tell me a little bit about your, your exposure to business at that age, but also your exposure to new cultures in Italy. Well, you've done your research. That's, uh, that's an interesting one. I haven't talked about that for a for a long time, so not sure where you dug that up. But yeah, I, I think that was an interesting experience for me because I was 11 or 12, yeah, 11 I think at the time, and uh, uh, didn't have a lot of money, obviously, as immigrants. And we spent six months in Italy as a place where you got processed with your papers and um, whether you're accepted to come to Australia or not. Uh, we actually had a choice of where to apply. Could have gone to Canada, US, I think New Zealand, obviously Israel. So there was a, a few countries we could have applied for. We applied to come to Australia, but because we had a grandmother with us, my grandmother with us, uh, it took a little longer as to how to figure out if uh, Australia will accept us or not. So in that time, 
Um, we lived definitely not a palatial life. It was uh, really making sure that we survive and, and how you make ends meet. A lot of um, immigrants brought things out of Russia uh, that they knew that they could potentially sell in Italy and it was a bit of a broken telephone and uh, people brought all sorts of different items. Uh, everything from cameras through to suitcases of condoms uh, through to corals and jewelry and all sorts of items that you were allowed to take with you because you were not allowed to take a lot. So you could only take certain items out of Russia that you then resold for some extra money outside of the uh, benefits that you might receive. Uh, and as an 11 year old, the, I know there was no spare cash in our household for niceties and I'd walk around and have a look at uh, other kids and, uh, and people eating pizzas and the things that attracted me was eating pizza and playing pinball machines. Uh, and certainly my parents could not give me the money for it. So uh, I learned pretty early that if I uh, wanted something, I need to try to find a way. So I did, and, and it was simply finding uh, bits of uh, jewelry and coral that others would be throwing away uh, as they were putting together beautiful pieces of jewelry. And I asked them to, quite frankly, if uh, whatever they were gonna throw away, they would give to me. And then I'd sit with my parents at night and do the same thing and make my own little bracelets and my own little bits of jewellery that I would sell at the market next to my parents. And my cost of goods was zero, which is amazing. And I always had enough a few dollars to go and do what uh, I wanted to do without uh, having to ask my parents for money. So I haven't had many of those businesses where cost of goods is zero. So that was good. <laughs> and next comes your migration with your family to Australia in 1978-1979. You attend Murrumbina High School where I read that your focus was more on fitting in and, and adapting and making friends rather than on any sort of academic pursuits. Tell us a little bit about your first exposure in Australia. What did you think and, and how hard was it to fit in? Yeah, so before Murrumbina High, I actually attended Elwood High for about six months. Then I went to Mount Scopus, which is a, a Jewish school for a couple of years. And uh, I have to say, I probably didn't do that well fitting into either of those schools. And um, by the end of the second year that I was in Mount Scopus, they didn't ask me to leave, but they put the fees up to a point that my parents couldn't afford. And um, I wasn't an amazing student, and I probably caused a little too much trouble for the... Uh, for the headmaster and we got to know each other really well. So um, that's where I moved to Murrumbina High and that was an eye opener for me as well. Probably not the best school and I think the best thing that could have happened to that school later on is for it to get demolished. Um, so the school itself was not amazing but I was an amazing student so we matched really well and yeah I focused a lot more on fitting into the school and with other people and probably had way too much fun, way too much trouble, way too many issues. Uh, school was not a huge priority, but somehow survived and passed and, uh, and moved on. But uh, I would not call myself an amazing scholar. That's not uh, something I think uh, history will show. Following high school, you then enrol in an accounting course at Victoria College in Paran, which was a, essentially a TAFE at the time rather than a university. Why accounting? Um, because my dad wanted me to be an engineer, but I was pretty sure I don't want to be an engineer and the university I got into was a little bit far away. Uh, and I spoke to my cousin who had finished uh, business and accounting and he told me that it was not terribly complicated uh, and it was quite interesting. So I thought, why not? I'm not sure what I wanna do. Business sounds good. I thought understanding numbers and uh, understanding the world of business is something that uh, could be useful for me in the future even though I didn't know 100% what I wanted to do. All I wanted to do was go and, uh, and work and earn money and be independent 
uh, and then if need be then continue studies but um, it was just not knowing what exactly I wanted to do but that seemed like a reasonable direction. Reflecting on your accountancy days, you previously said in an article, as an accountant you're actually very lucky, you get to see a lot of businesses, how they, how they succeed and how they make mistakes. I'm interested to, to get a gauge on what you saw were some of the successes and failures that businesses that you were exposed to were making. Yeah, I think I learned how, much, how important people are and, uh, and whether they're passionate about what they do or whether they don't. There was a lot of businesses that I saw that have very little care factors other people's money, uh, do they care, do they not, how hard are they going to work. So for me that was an important one. The other one was systems and processes. Um, being, being a numbers person I realised how important it is to understand your business from a numbers point of view, uh, how important it is to have the right systems and processes, they either work or they don't. So literally watching businesses succeed and fail was a, was a great learning experience. I did some audit, I did all sorts of different things that a lot of young accountants do so that exposure was very useful to understand and watch and observe from the sidelines uh, as an auditor sometimes from pretty dark offices uh, if you don't know not a lot of people love auditors so they put you in the darkest corner so hence now we're sitting here with a nice view over Albert Park Lake I didn't enjoy the staring at the, at the brick walls but it, I did learn a lot so and it's a free free learning you don't have to always learn from your own mistakes you can certainly learn a lot from other people's mistakes. So you're in your early to mid-twenties, you're working as an accountant and later as an auditor. Uh, you're working, I think I read, above a fish and chip shop in a small office at one stage as well. But next comes along an opportunity to acquire a property in South Caulfield wherein you demolish the property that was there and build two townhouses, selling one and, and keeping the other. Tell me about your experience into property development. How, how did it come about and, and what was the outcome? Yeah, my first experience was a doozy. Uh, it was, uh, I think, the best thing and the worst thing that could have happened to me at the time. Um, the reason I got into it was because when I was in my teens, not knowing what I wanted to do, one of my family friends who was a well-to-do gentleman and was in property, I remember him telling me, and now I understand that he was probably feeling a little bit of pity or uh, uh, showing that he, he didn't think much of what may happen to me. He said, Larry, I don't know what you're going to do or what you're going to make of yourself but I really recommend you think about property and how you get into property and how you can uh, get involved in the property sector. And that stuck with me because I didn't receive a lot of advice from people. So as soon as I could save up enough money and I was starting a family, I looked at how do I buy a property uh, and more so how do I add value to it. So I thought, look, I'm gonna go and try to develop two townhouses in South Caulfield, bought a piece of land. I bought it from a gentleman that I think is well known in the property industry even back then. Um, Bernard Morley at the, at the time, and uh, is it Rodney, Rodney Morley, yeah. We'll, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he missed the fact that um, the property he sold me had a single dwelling covenant. Uh, I very much clearly indicated to him what I was thinking of doing the land, of putting two townhouses on, but to his defense, not, not only did he miss it, but when I applied to, register, to uh, build two townhouses, the council missed it as well, my lawyers missed it, for some reason, I got lucky or unlucky that everyone missed the idea that there's a single dwelling covenant on the property. In those days, the titles looked a little different and it was hidden a bit sort of further down page three. And maybe it wasn't as obvious as it, as it is these days. So I applied, I actually received a permit for two townhouses, started construction, all going well, about halfway through, 
uh, my parents suggested that um, one of their friends was looking for a townhouse and would I be interested in potentially selling them one of the two townhouses, promptly sent them all the information and I remember getting quite a aggravated phone call from uh, my parents' family friends asking me as to what is, what is it that I think that I'm doing, that I'm trying to cheat them or I'm trying to do something untoward and I had no idea what they were talking about uh, and it's their lawyer that actually picked up the fact that there was a uh, single dwelling covenant on the on the land and I wasn't even allowed to be building two townhouses and at that point the whole development came to a grounding halt and it was a complete and utter nightmare for the next six months to try to figure this out and um, try to resolve what happens with council, what happens with builders. I tried to get every neighbour to sign on onto a petition to remove the covenant and all bar one agreed and there's always one and I learned that and I went door to door asking everyone to please help this young, stupid individual who uh, uh, missed such a vital, vital detail. And of course there was one, the neighbor at the back, just refused, tried to, you know, I think bribe, bribery, or he tried to see if he can extort some money out of me. And, um, and finally, at the end, I actually convinced the council to still let me proceed with the development. And it was a question of who, who was the easier one to appease and who was going to sue the council for least amount of money. So they actually allowed me to continue with the development and subdivide it and then relodge the single dwelling covenant onto each property. So I think to this day I'm almost certain that it's the only property in uh, Caulfield that has uh, two titles with each one of them being a single dwelling covenant. So I survived, I sold the property, I moved on and that was my first property development in the man I learned. I couldn't have learned probably in 10 developments if I hadn't got so much wrong. Now, before we move on, and we'll move on to discuss Dodo shortly, but correct me if I'm wrong, over the next decade, say between 98, uh, sorry, 88 and 98, you spent still working as an auditor, but also completing developments on the side as well. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I worked and sort of studied a little more, and then I worked with um, a number of very, very successful business people. One of it was working first as an accountant and helping him run supermarkets. Learned a lot from him, a gentleman by the name of David Goldberg. Um, really, really nice business person and I learned a lot from him. And whilst working there, I did continue to do some developments. Sort of the day looked a bit like getting up at 5.30 in the morning, going to the building site, realizing no tradespeople showed up, getting on the phone as I'm driving, lunchtime, after work. So yeah, and uh, really enjoyed that time, but it was tough. I also had my son at the time, so there were busy times, and, uh, but I learned a lot. Let's now fast forward to the launch of your own ISP, Dodo, in around about September of 2001, alongside two other business partners. If I recall correctly, you attended a conference in Sydney and there was about 900 attendees there and they were all slamming Telstra and talking about TPG and you saw an opportunity to basically go in and, and launch your own ISP to try and compete. What happened next? Well, next I, I thought I need to employ some people that actually know something about internet uh, because I certainly didn't. Uh, I understood the opportunity by seeing so many technically minded people and they were brilliant. Uh, but they, I could see that they're not business people and uh, I felt that out of that group, outside of the Telstras and the big companies, I could be a bit like the leader of the opposition from a business sense uh, and hire some of the technical knowledge that's needed and that's exactly what I did. I hired the first sort of five people uh, that were all very, very technical and understood the internet business a lot better than I did uh, and my job was to try to build a business out of it. So. Um, 
and I'm, I'm proud to say that a couple of them are still in our world and still work with me and, and to this day I hired them as 20, well one of them was a 20 year old and now he's in his early 40s and uh, very successful and still working together. The business became known for a number of key differentiators as compared with those incumbent players, in particular superior customer service, easier to understand contracts and also high usage limits. Was that something that you'd identified early on in the process that you wanted to be known for? Number one thing that I wanted to be known for was simplicity. Uh, I think at that point it was super complicated. There were so many different plans, offers. Uh, I think the large companies almost like the confusion in the in the marketplace as to how they charge you for how much. So it's in the old days of the dial-up with the you know with the funny tone as you connect. There were lots of different phone numbers. You had to connect to your local area exchange. So it was a very complicated in early days of the internet, and I wanted to simplify all that and make it less scary for people uh, and make it easier. So we stuck with only a couple of plans. We came up with a interesting bird as a character for our brand and make it the opposite of whatever Telstra would have been. Customer service was always going to be important, but I have to say that one we probably didn't get right for a, for a long, long time. We realized how difficult that is when you're processing that many payments, that many customers, and trying to keep the price really, really uh, attractive. And the business we were in was almost in customer service, not really internet provision. Internet provision is the technical element of it, but how important the customer service and call centers and operations were, we probably underestimated in the early days. And as the business grew, we actually became experts on that a lot more than the internet part of it. The internet part of it was the simple component. It's all about how we looked after our customer uh, became our focus. A lot of people will remember the, the mascot, the bird, as you said, and, and the strength of the brand as well. Was that, how did you go about building that brand? Was that something that you had identified at the beginning or is it something that was established over time? Oh no, it was right from uh, the outset. I think we realised, as I mentioned earlier, we want to be the leader of the opposition. So if you think of the corporate dry um, business like a you know, Telstra or an APT at the time, very, very corporate-like. Even now they've got brands that communicate to the consumer a lot better. At that point it was all very, very straight. We wanted to go the opposite way. So families, fun, simple, uh, and there was no simpler way than a dodo bird, an extinct bird that doesn't fly. And we came up with a slogan of internet that flies uh, and really get cut through. We didn't have big budgets, so we needed to be a little noisy, a little uh, a little out there and grab attention any which way we can, competing against the big boys. So it was very intentional and we stayed true to who we are and never, never wavered. We're all about fun and cut through and about your average Australian looking for a great deal uh, and simplicity. In less than three or four years, so we're now at sort of 2004, 2005, the business had established a relatively strong market share. You had, I think, roughly 240,000 dial-up subscribers, 40,000 broadband subscribers, and you were generating somewhere in the vicinity of 80 million in revenue per annum. Take me through how you manage this level of growth in such a short period of time. You hold on to your panties. You hold on and you go for a wild ride and you get a lot of things wrong and you build a really strong, resilient, uh, young team around you where we feel like we're really doing something fun and, uh, and challenging and meaningful. So uh, it was a wild ride. We got a lot of things wrong, but we were super focused and super hardworking and we just kept on moving. It was an industry that would change almost monthly. So we had to evolve very, very quickly and I'm, I was lucky that I managed to find such an amazing group of people around me. 
that we could adapt and just keep learning ourselves on the job and keep evolving and we ended up being market leaders in innovation of plans and products and uh, how the actual internet space works and people won't remember this now but you know we were one of the first to do even unlimited dial-up then we did unlimited broadband as the first ones new plans with giveaway products on mobiles discount electricity so we really really challenged the status quo uh, of what not just um, not just internet but home services looked like so it was a lot of fun but super challenging a lot of people may not know this but correct me if i'm wrong telstra approached you or approached the business in and around about 2005 with an offer of between 50 and 60 million dollars given the business was still relatively young a lot of others would have accepted that offer and, and moved on what made you want to continue to pursue that growth and, and something bigger it was a little bit different it wasn't quite like that uh, they approached us we went through the whole uh, due diligence phase with them the number was substantially larger than that and we said yes so we actually agreed to sell the business uh, we even had a celebratory lunch I remember with uh, Ziggy at the time and I wasn't 100% convinced that I should be selling but I have to say the offer and the uh, the timing was quite compelling and then it went to a board meeting and it's the one and only board meeting that ever the board rejected the sign-off from the CEO and the sponsor uh, and it was the time where the board threw over the actual management team within the Telstra world and uh, it had nothing to do with us it was actually things that happened in the background with other deals that they put up and it was a uh, sign of uh, no trust in the management and, and that management moved on so as far as I was concerned it was all done management was all done uh, and sitting there late at night, remember getting the phone call from a very, very shocked individual who said, Larry, look, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, uh, there's been a bit of a problem. Uh, it was meant to be a foregone conclusion because at that level, it's a normal sign off for the board. And um, remember the words he said, um, don't worry. Uh, this is a matter of a couple of days. This has nothing to do with our deal. This is obviously a much bigger play here. We'll resolve it and it'll be fine. And I remember being shocked and uh, dismayed because once you go through that sort of a process, your whole team is already resigned to the fact that you're selling. This is what's going to happen. And all I could think about, not the money, it was more, oh my God, look, if this doesn't happen, I need to refire up the team. We need to refocus. We need to keep going. How is that going to work out? I was actually quite angry about it. Uh, and in the morning when I spoke to the team at Telstra, I said to them, guys, I'm out. I'm not. If the answer was no, it's no, it's not meant to be, I'm going to move on, I need to regroup my team. And they literally was trying to convince me to wait for a few days and I said, I'm not going to wait. Um, I'm done, it's been three months in the process and uh, if the answer was no, it's no, it's not meant to be and we're going to regroup and move on. And that's what we did. Uh, I got everyone together, we went away for a little retreat and uh, used a few interesting tactics to try to refocus everyone and, and off we go. And sure enough, a week later, I think maybe 10 days, they came back in writing to confirm that they want to proceed. And I said, no, nah, look, I've moved on. Uh, not meant to be. And the rest is history. And it was a good decision in the end, because given the 12 years of strong profitable growth that you'd achieved in 2013, it was announced that Dodo was being acquired by M2 Communications in a $203.9 million deal. Piece together for me how, how that deal came together. Again, timing. Um, I think 
I was really enjoying and in, really enjoyed and was very happy that I didn't sell. And, and not, not because of the money, but I think the sort of things we did in the following years post the Telstra conversation were a lot of fun. Uh, we learned how to run uh, call centers a lot better. We launched all sorts of different products and, and became leaders in the world as to what you do from a home services point of view, doing electricity and gas and insurance and all sorts of other products. So it was a, it was a absolutely uh, interesting and fun time for everyone and we became very good at what we did. We did have great growth and um, the only thing that happened with maturity is a lot of fun things that I used to do got taken over by others within the company. So as everyone matured, as the younger kids became older, they took on a lot of the fun things. And the things that I was left with, I was not necessarily enjoying uh, as much. So um, over a conversation, over a lunch, the gentleman who's uh, become a very, very good friend of mine, who ran M2 at the time, a public company, we both grew up in the telecommunication industry, him more in the mergers and acquisition space through the public company world, uh, myself more in the organic world of growth through Dodo and we always joked about you know who's going to buy who or who's going to end up where and I remember having that conversation with him and he was in the public world with mergers and acquisitions and uh, he asked me if I would be interested. I said to him it's like sending your pet to a good home or selling your pet to a good home. I said I would be interested if it was you and I knew it was going to be a good hands. I think it's a conversation. And over lunch, we literally agreed on the deal and the rest is history and never never even had a raised voice or, or an argument through the process and, uh, and had, did the deal over the space of the next few months. So that caps off the first phase, let's call it, of your career. Let's now talk about the second phase being LK Group. Business launched in 2009. From the outside looking in, it looks like the original mandate was on property and property development. Obviously, that's changed and grown, and the, and the business now encompasses over 20 different companies, private equity, retail, still property, sports, which we'll get through to shortly. Tell me about the launch of the business of LK Group in 2009 and, and some of those early projects that you worked on in the property space. And I know that your program is uh, a little bit property focused, so it may not uh, sit super well, but I can't say that I'm the most passionate property developer in the world. And uh, when you see it, some of the things I've done that might not uh, compute. But for me, it's much more around the reason why to develop. Uh, am I passionate about this? Is there a purpose to what I'm doing? So I've been much more of a people and operator of businesses. So when I started Dodo, I actually thought I was going to get out of property. So that was my actual thought process. I don't love it. I've done it. I earned a good income from it, but I don't know that I'm passionate enough about it to continue doing it. So I actually thought I would stop. And of course I didn't. So I continued to do it side by side. I started a number of other businesses during the Dodo with the offshoring, the outsourcing, a few tech investments, sports betting company, all sorts of things uh, along the way. So the idea of the LK Group really existed much earlier. Uh, it comes from my inability to just do one thing and stay focused and uh, I need variety in my life and especially as soon as I feel like something's running well, I feel I need to start slowly handing that off and, uh, and do something new. So uh, I, I'm a confessed recovering startup addict. So I try not to, um, not to do that anymore, but in my earlier years, I loved it. I really enjoyed building teams, processes, systems, but property just continued to stay with me. Part of because I could not find any other better way to invest capital. So if I was making money, 
Um, certainly some investments into new businesses were great, but property just kept on being there and something that I got more and more comfortable and I knew what I was doing and uh, I felt I was pretty good at it. So I would continue to do it and had other people within my world to help me do it. Uh, but I cannot say I'm the most passionate uh, property developer. But as capital grew, so did the developments. So that's really the story, I think, of the, of the two. As the group and other businesses continue to grow and continue to grow now, I diversify and I think I still continue to do property, just bigger projects. You've certainly got a, a knack for it. The building that we're in here at 10 Queens Road, you purchased, I think, for 21.5 million or thereabouts in 2013 on a 10.8% yield. You then sold that uh, about five years later in 2018 and, and tripled your money, sold it for in excess of of $60 million. So while you may not be passionate about property, what are the, the fundamentals to success in property, do you think? Uh, I think what I'm pretty good at is understanding consumers and understanding what people want. And I think with property, it's not necessarily that different. I think I see things maybe a little bit different to a traditional developer. And for me, the important part is to look at every not just development, but every block of land as uh, its own entity and what is the absolute best use for the people uh, out of this location, whether it be an empty block of land, whether it be a building like this, whether it be uh, you know, uh, a vision of something completely different. And, th and this building was actually being sold primarily as a residential development. It had permits to build a couple of stories on top. It was very run down. Uh, and when I came here, I saw something totally different. Uh, I saw it back as an office. I didn't think it was a residential development. And you also leverage what you have. So I already had some businesses that could come in here and actually occupy the business. So it's a combination of what is the best use for the building and can I leverage something that I'm already doing and do I have a vision for it? So that's why. And then you need to get your timing right. You, you really need to be able to, as, as history shows, you, you need to, and maybe age, helps with that, you need to be able to read the tea leaves a little bit as to where the markets are at, when is a good time to buy, when is a good time to sell, sort of, um, um, I think that still is a very, very important one. I don't totally buy into the adage of you can buy property any time and longer term it'll work out and well, it's sort of, it's sort of true, but it's still much better to buy at the right time and sell at the right time. So uh, I think I'm not too bad at, um, at trying to read the markets. And I try not to overexpose myself. So if I have to hold something, then uh, I need to be able to do that. Before we move on from property, I do have to ask you, of course, about the Capital Grand project and, and a, a true landmark now. A person that you know lives in Melbourne or comes to Melbourne knows it and, and sees it. Was that very much a, a, even though you're not passionate about property, was that something when you acquired that site in 2015, 5,500 square metres, corner of Turak, and Chapel, uh, Turak Road and Chapel Street, was that something that you wanted to leave a legacy of your property endeavours? No. It was, a, what about the vision for it? It was about something that had to be done. Uh, it was about a community that I think was not being looked after in Melbourne. Uh, it was something that I knew that I was part of and it came out of me looking for a really great apartment and realising that it's not something that is very common in Melbourne. Uh, an amazing city like Melbourne, a uh, lot of wealth, a lot of success and, and generally uh, such property mad culture that we all want to own property and I sold a house in Brighton and I was looking for a for a great apartment and I was open to what the budget is and I just realized that there's not a lot around. 
So I, there was a vision for me of how a certain community would want to live. And having traveled a lot, I've seen what uh, that looks like in New York and Asia. And, and uh, for it not to be in Melbourne was a bit of a surprise to me. And when that block came up, uh, I certainly said no to it on a number of occasions. And it wasn't even officially for sale, but there were rumors that it could be bought. The price was too much. Everyone said I overpaid for it. Uh, and probably for what was there, I did. But I had a different vision for how I wanted a community to live, starting with myself. And I thought there were going to be about 400, ended up being 370 apartments. Uh, the permit that was obtained by people prior to me was 37-story building of good quality, but not exceptional. And what I wanted to do was build something where uh, community will live in a very particular way. And it's not for everyone, and it's now not for everyone, uh, but I've, it proved to be right, and it's just such an amazing place to live. Uh, the tagline that we've got for it is the home of inspired living. And it's exactly how I feel. I feel inspired every time I come home, and it's a very, very special place. So it came out of wanting to do something for a community of people that I think for a place like Melbourne deserved a very special place to live. Uh, and I'm proud to say that I live there and a very wonderful group of people call it home. Under the LK Group umbrella also sits, of course, your ownership of the National Basketball League, the competition which you originally outlaid $7 million for a 51% stake in 2015. And then you've, you've since gone on and acquired the, the, the rest of it. If I recall correctly, you've long had a passion for, for basketball over many, many years. Your first exposure to basketball in terms of ownership was the ownership of the Melbourne Tigers team, now Melbourne United in 2012. How has your interest grown over the, the past decade? It's grown tremendously. Uh, it started off as a family project not to let a club that my whole family and a greater community loved it was going to uh, disappear, it was going to go into administration and not knowing what would happen for it. It was the last club standing out of 15 different clubs that had come and gone in Melbourne. Uh, and with our business background, I think my whole family strong, strongly encouraged me, starting with my mother, um, to do something about it and not to let it disappear. So it was applying my business knowledge to something that was relatively small business and giving it the respect that it needed to make it sustainable. That's how we got started uh, in the business. It was a hell of a lot harder than I ever thought. Uh, I thought it's a small business, how hard can it be? And it was a lot harder than I ever thought. And then it entailed, unfortunately, having to resurrect the club in a different version and not just represent the members of the Melbourne Tigers, but actually represent the whole basketball community in Melbourne and hence the change uh, of Melbourne United. So that was a difficult decision because myself and my family were passionate about the Melbourne Tigers and having to let that go and start a new version of a club was hard, but we went through that journey. Why? Because we want the club and the sport to be sustainable. Uh, and the same ethos really continued through the league. The league got itself into deep trouble and was on the verge of um, bankruptcy, on the verge of being handed back to the Federation or having to take on some new version of itself. Uh, and I saw there a combination of an opportunity where I truly believed and I thought I understand the sport. Very, very strong grassroots participation, love of the sport, but the business of the NBL was very, very broken and I wanted to take that on from a passion point of view, but also saw a business opportunity that um, I thought I could do well. And the same thing, it was a lot harder than I... I knew it was going to be hard, really hard, but it was even harder than that. Uh, but here we are, we just celebrated a thousand games under our ownership and. Uh, League is going from strength to strength and very proud of where we're at. 
lots of work still to do, but um, really love it. What have been the keys to the turnaround strategy? Obviously there's been new stadium deals, there's been new broadcast deals, there's been new sponsorship contracts that have gone into place. How have you been able to turn that league around? Business. Sport of business is very confusing. Uh, everyone loves sport, but I think the way the old adage is that uh, business people leave their head at the door when they get involved in sport is very, very true. So I've had to stay true to myself and unfortunately maybe take a step back as a, as a fan and really become very focused around the business of sport and understand what business we're in, um, not just basketball, but we're in the business of entertainment and understand what do the consumers and what do the customers want out of our sport? What value do we bring? What do we deliver? Because I think NBA lost a little bit of its relevance. Everyone could watch the NBA, the more open and um, uh, attainable access to the NBA has been, the more irrelevant NBL became. So we had to improve our product out of sight. Uh, and now I'm proud to say that we're the second best league in the world and uh, now travel and compete against NBA clubs to the point that we recently uh, even beat one of the NBA clubs in their preseason game. So uh, it's been really, really looking at every pillar of business and building a team that is not just passionate about basketball, but is passionate about building the business of sport. And it just happens to be that we play basketball uh, and we're in the business of entertainment. So every pillar of business, as you would in any other, had to be re-looked at, understand, bring the right people on board and go back to how I started, people in process, bring the right people on board, uh, build the right processes and maybe a bit of my passion. A couple of quick questions to finish because I know you're pressed for time. Queen's Lane Capital, which is the private equity division of the business, you're heavily exposed to the retail sector. What do you like about retail? I, I don't think it's a question of me being attracted to retail. Um, Queen's Lane Capital is uh, a private equity arm of our business. The great thing is that I'm not attached to any sector. Uh, we look at a couple of factors. We look as to number one, where can we as a group, and starting with myself and the team that I have, where can we bring the most value and how can we help that business grow and become better? Uh, unlike private equity who generally starts at the idea of returns and uh, mandates and all sorts of other criteria, size and industry, uh, we're totally open to the industry. The first question is uh, that I ask myself and the team, can we actually help this business grow? Can we help this business be successful? That's my number one. The other one is if we're not buying 100% of it, uh, am I going to enjoy the people that I'm working with? Um, one of the biggest privileges of success is I can choose. I don't have to do any business that I don't like. So we very much care about the people and who we're working with. So every business we're involved with, either we're buying 100% of it and then putting our own people in or if we're buying always a controlling stake but if the founders or the people running the business are staying in we need to be partnered with the right people. So we are now involved in everything from fashion, retail, through to um, building supplies, through to donuts uh, and others. So I've gone away from startups uh, and now what I try to do is make sure that we buy sizable businesses that we think we can actually improve and make better and that's something that I love because it goes back to working with people and, and, and uh, building things, which I, I really enjoy, just don't do them from the start. What does it take to be successful? Uh, I think you have to be other people's focused. I don't know, for, for me, successful people, that if it was all about money and, uh, and myself and what happens to me, um, I don't think you can be successful. 
you cannot do this alone. And uh, I've been lucky that I grew up in a household that was that way. Uh, and I've always loved people and really care about what happens with them. And we go on the journey of doing this together. So success to me is absolutely measuring success by financial is important because no one enjoys losing money or uh, that's part of how you measure success. But enjoying life and being happy and being surrounded by number one, of course, your family where you enjoy their company, uh, but then also a greater family. So when you talk about the number of businesses that I have, I truly care about everyone that I'm involved with and we're there for each other and we're like a big gang and we try to uh, do fun things. We have a lot of fun outside of just doing business. We play together, we have fun together, um, whether it's you know travel, uh, we enjoy each other's company. So for me, life is amazing. I love life and life is really good and uh, I love who I'm surrounded by. So success on my own would be just lonely. So I, I, I like people. Final question, are there any industries or sectors that you don't have any investment or capital deployed in at the moment, but that you're looking from a long-term perspective that, that may have some opportunity for you and the team here at LK Group? No, no, I think property will continue to be something that we're doing, but other than that, we'll just look at opportunities. There's probably other things that I may not get involved in. I don't think we've ever have been, and unless all of a sudden I meet someone that I really enjoy and become friends with and they're experts in the medical sector or in the you know, chemical sector. And there are just certain sectors that I don't believe I'm an expert in. What we are good at is consumer. I think we understand consumer. So anything that's related in that area, I think uh, will be more our focus. Unless um, I get close to someone who's an expert and I enjoy their company, then, then we might have a look at it. Larry Kesselman, fascinating discussion. Thank you very, very much for your time. Absolute pleasure.